4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne, and today I'm here with my co-producers, Miles Traer and Leslie Chang. How's hey, it, Mike? Hey, what up? And we're all in studio today because today is the 50th episode of Generation Anthropocene. Yeah! <laughs> and since it's our 50th, we wanted to do something special. We decided to get back to our roots and talk about the Anthropocene in a really specific way. Many of our listeners may not know this, but the Anthropocene is actually being considered for formal adoption by the International Commission on Stratigraphy. These are the masters of the geologic timetable. Right. So they decide where and when to place boundaries in geologic time. And the fact that they decided to consider the Anthropocene is a really big deal. It's a big deal. At least for geologists. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it is a big deal because, like, let's think for a minute about how we slice up geologic time. When we transition from bacteria to more complex life, that's a boundary. Boom. When life crawls from oceans and out onto land, that's a boundary. Boom. And when we go from dinosaurs to no dinosaurs, that's a boundary. Sort of, you get the idea. (laughs) The the key to every boundary is that it represents a global transformation. Right. The point is that the Earth before and after are two very different places. So today on our 50th show, we're going to talk to some of the members of the Anthropocene Working Group. These are the scientists and experts, the actual people, who are debating and deciding whether or not to adopt the Anthropocene as a formal geologic unit. So, yes, this is going to get a little nerdy, but <laughs> but in a good way, in the best possible way. Yeah, I think we should also mention that this group doesn't get together all that often. And when they do, it's not like they have a microphone recording their thoughts. So this was really a pretty special thing to be able to record them, a sort of behind-the-scenes look at all that nerdy geology. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Peek behind the curtain, yeah. Yeah. So, Miles, you made this conversation happen. Set it up for us. Sure. So I contacted Davor Vidas. He's an international lawyer and a member of the Anthropocene Working Group. And, you know, you'd think that the Anthropocene Working Group would be mostly geologists, and it is mostly geologists. But there are a lot of other experts who have taken an interest, too. So I met DeVore at a talk that he was giving on the law of the Holocene. Now, we should clarify what the Holocene is. So the Holocene is our current geologic age, and it began back when the saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths went extinct. So if we decide to adopt the Anthropocene as a boundary, it'll be a boundary between the Anthropocene and the Holocene. Right. So DeVore was talking about how international laws, all of which were written in the Holocene, will need to adapt to become laws in the Anthropocene. And he put us in contact with three other members of the Anthropocene Working Group who agreed to sit down with us for this roundtable discussion. So let's introduce DeVore first. I actually thought that, you know, his involvement with the Anthropocene Working Group was kind of strange. So I started by asking him how he got involved with this group. Davor Vidas, you're a bit of an odd man out here because you are the director of the Law of the Sea and Marine Affairs Program at the Fridjof Nansen Institute. How did you join up with this group and are there legal implications to establishing a new geologic boundary? 
Well, how to put this? I first heard about the word, the term Anthropocene in 2008. So it's not a long time ago. And then I thought uh, there is a certain relationship between our core concepts of international law and geological time units, or unit, better to say. We take, in international law, we take Holocene for granted. And our international law is a law for Holocene. However, with the entry into the Anthropocene, with the conditions which are not environmentally stable as we know them from our experience, we may be facing a problem. We may need to conceive um, new fundamentals in terms of what a state is, because state is recognized as having a permanent territory, where the baseline in the law of the sea is, because we, we think the geography is fixed. So we may be faced with uh, very complex issues. So what was he talking about there? Yeah, Devor's accent is a little tricky for me, too. Okay, so Devor is an expert on the law of the sea. And the way we've divided up the oceans, sort of who owns what, is going to change with sea level rise. So that's like an example of how international law might change in the Anthropocene. Okay. Cool. Okay, so that's Devor. And we actually have three other people on this panel, so we're going to introduce them one by one. Right. So our first panelist is Jan Zelishevich. And I'm sorry, Jan, I'm sure I'm still messing that up. And we have two other geologists as well, Mike Ellis and Mark Williams. Jan Zelishevich is a stratigrapher, someone who analyzes strata, and a paleobiologist at the University of Leicester. And he's kind of the unofficial spokesperson for this group. Hey, Miles, before we introduce Jan, we ought to define that term strata. Uh, It's a geologic term. Miles, do you want to define it? Sure. So strata is basically layers of rock. If you go to the Grand Canyon and see all of those different layers, that's strata. Okay. All right. So now we can get started. Here's Jan Zelashevich. The thought experiment is that if we could travel millions of years into the future and look back into the rock record, that there would be a clear distinction. There would be a clear delineation of the Anthropocene. What types of things would those future geologists find in the rocks? Jan, Jan please start us off. I can have a go. I think it's almost certain that there will be uh, not just a boundary layer. Uh, So uh, a lot of things we are changing now, we're changing life. Uh, And that doesn't mean we will just make things extinct, you know, or maybe transport other species around. Uh, But those will then be the animals and plants from which future ones will evolve. So there won't just be a boundary layer with different animals, but there will be a break from one sort of assemblage to another in the future. Something else that will almost certainly happen. There will be a major climate change, um, you know, probably of of the order of uh, three, five, perhaps seven degrees globally. There will be a major sea level rise, you know, of probably several tens of, of meters. Uh, and that will affect all strata. So shorelines will move uh, in towards the land. Uh, what had been shallow sea will become deeper sea. Uh, what had been areas where there was, let's say, a beach will become covered by, uh, you know, offshore muds. Uh, so the signal, physically, biologically, chemically, um, will be quite clear. I'll, I'll add a few more things into, into that. Sorry, Mike Ellis, please. Okay, this is British geologist number two here. Yeah, this is Mike Ellis. He's currently the head of climate change science at the British Geological Survey, and he has a formal background in earth surface processes. 
some of the things that we'll see will be will be spikes, changes, uh, uh, let's say, in, in the isotopes of carbon or um, nitrogen. And those sort of changes will be related principally to climate change. There are also going to be very direct manifestations of an Anthropocene signal. So all the made ground, that will, uh, a lot of that will become fossilized simply because sea level is rising. I mean, let me make the figures that Jan just mentioned a little bit more precise. So if we go for a three to five degree global mean world, then the last time we were at that state was about 3.2 million years ago. And the sea level at that time was between 20 and 25 meters higher. If you go back 125,000 years ago, the last significant interglacial, then the global mean temperature was about one to two, maybe two and a half degrees higher. And sea level was about, say, six and a half meters higher than today. So but the point is, of course, as, as Jan made, sea level's rising, and so it will fossilize the various urban structures that we have built over the past few hundreds of years. And those would be one of the clear signals, too. So that was Mike Ellis. And our final panelist is Mark Williams. He's a paleobiologist at the University of Leicester. For me, the Anthropocene, one of the, one of the, the best physical manifestations of it, the growth of cities. Mike has talked about the urban strata, but my wife comes from the beautiful island of Java, and the capital city of Indonesia is Jakarta. And at the turn of the 20th century, its population was about 100,000. And now it's, it captures an area of about 23 million people. It's a huge megacity. And that huge megacity is, um, Jan's referred to this in the past, as, as a kind of huge human trace fossil. So in the rock record, of course, we find trace fossils of lots of, lots of different organisms, and sometimes we can relate them to the organism, and sometimes, sometimes we can't. In this case, of course, we can relate it directly to, 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 to human activity, but we have underground systems that run across our megacities in New York, in, in, in London, and they're going, to, they're going to produce huge trace fossils that we'll, preser we'll preserve into the future. And the 20th century, the, the early 21st century, has shown an incredible growth in the rate of megacities. There are probably 20 cities in China bigger than London that, that I may not have even heard of. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an incredible phenomenon, I think. I think someone should explain this trace fossil thing. Yeah, so when we think about fossils, we usually think about bones or seashells or something. A trace fossil is like a footprint or a burrow that gets preserved in the rock record. So it's indirect evidence for life. And the idea with the Anthropocene is that you know, our cities or our sewer systems or subways will be like massive trace fossils in the future. Got it. Okay, so now we've been introduced to everyone on the panel. And are we ready to get into the debate of the Anthropocene? Yes, I am. Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> Excellent. Let's so... I started this with a question that I'd been dying to ask them, and it's about where we place the Anthropocene boundary. Humans have always sort of manipulated their environment from fire to agriculture to cities. Given that, don't we have to draw the boundary, the Anthropocene boundary, at the moment that humans first appear in the evolutionary tree? No, no, not, not, not necessarily. Again, Anthropocene doesn't mean the same as anthropogenic or human-influenced. Uh, the, the, the raison d'etre for the Anthropocene isn't because we're here, you know, because we, we are ruling the planet or anything like that. Uh, the reason for the Anthropocene is that because the Earth, Earth's surface geology is changing. 
Uh, we happen to be behind most of the changes. Um, we may not be behind all of them. And some of them we may trigger off and then they will go off by themselves, you know, as in the release of methane from the permafrost and, 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 and so on. Um, geology is messy um, and geological history is complicated and varies in time and space. And when geologists try and make use of that in, in, in the sense of history, what they look for is, if you like, the the levels or the, the positions of greatest change. So humans have been around. They've been around for a few millions of years as, as, as the genus. The species has been around for 160,000 years. Fire has been used for tens of thousands of years. Um, agriculture for oh, seven or so, something like that. Um, and, and all those traces are, are, are visible in, in the record. The I guess the key point is that until, let's say, a few hundred years ago, the, the Holocene would not, in the far future, have looked maybe terribly different, at least on, on a, you know, a first glance at the strata. But there has been nothing like, if you like, the, um, the dramatic expansion of, of humans, of energy use, uh, and of CO2 release since about oh, 1800. Uh, or, or so, uh, and that is a, a, a very large step, and it brings—it's another order of magnitude, uh, and that in itself has given way to yet another order of magnitude since about 1940, 1950. You know what Will Stefan has called the, the Great Acceleration, uh, and that has brought us into a world which uh, is changing very fast, uh, will change even more, uh, and will now create a, a striking difference, if you like, in, into future geology. Uh, and so we then have the problem of saying, where do we draw the boundary? And it won't be um, at the first sign of human influence. It will be at what seems to be the best marker layer to separate the world of the present and the future from the world of, of, of the past. So, I mean, if I can just follow on from what Jan has said, I mean, as stratigraphers, we look for the event horizon. And we're still perhaps looking for the event horizon with, with, with the Anthropocene. And we, we do this all the way through the geological column. So if you take the boundary between the, the Precambrian and the, and the Phanerozoic, which we defined about 542 million years ago, we see a whole series of events that lead up to that boundary. We see the first kind of skeletonized organisms a little bit below the boundary. A little bit lower down, we find metazoan organisms, so, so organisms with lots, of, with lots of cells. We don't take either of those as the base of the, of the, of the Phanerozoic. We take the appearance of a particular set of trace fossils in the, in, the, in the fossil record, because they tell us that animal behavior has fundamentally changed. And so that's, that's the event horizon which describes the difference between everything that's gone before and everything that's gone, ha that's gone after. And that's really what we're looking for with, with the Anthropocene also. You can make a case, again, based on what we've just been talking about, independently of climate change, you could make a case for the Anthropocene because of land use change, because of agriculture, because of all these things. But would we even be discussing the Anthropocene without climate change? Yes. Yeah, it is short. Climate change has, has not really happened yet. You know, we, we've seen um, not yet quite a degree of, 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 of global climate change, rather more in, in the north and, and south than at, at, at the equator or in mid-latitudes. Uh, but we've seen all kinds of other ch habitat changes, uh, you know, to fundamentally alter the biosphere. Uh, extinctions, not so many yet, but many things critically endangered, many species transplanted. So in, in, in countries like 
uh, or New Zealand, then something like half the species now are, are, are non-native invasive species, mm-hmm. you know, which have taken over. And they're, they're there, more or less permanently. And, and, and actually, to add to this, you can say that, in fact, the debate about an Anthropocene started before we'd even recognized that climate change was upon us, because it goes back to the 19th century. I mean, the term was very much brought back into the into the kind of collective memory by, by Paul Crutzen. But Antonio Stepani, an, an Italian working in the na- late 19th century in Milan, had already come up with the idea of, a, of an anthropozoic era. Anthropozoic era, era he called so, it. So it, it, it predates climate, an understanding of climate change. Devor, you seem I, like I, you I, want to get in here. Yes, <laughs> I, I think that um, there are many other indicators other than change of climate. Um, if you look as to the migration of... of various organism species. You know, in one ship today, since the ballast water started to be used, but in, in ballast water tanks, you have a transport in, in average of, uh, I believe, around 7,000 different organisms from one part of the, the ocean to the other. And spilling in, imagine, multiply this with the number of ships. Uh, 90% of trade tra- is transported, global trade is transported on the sea. So we are making a cocktail organisms all the time moving. It has nothing to do with climate change. Mike, real quick, I like this guy, but I didn't totally follow that. What did you say there about ballast water? Yeah, so ballast water is like weight at the bottom of a boat, and ships will pump it in to keep from tipping over. So they'll pump it in one harbor, and then they'll dump it at another harbor. So because of all the global trade, we're sort of mixing up the biology of the world's oceans. Okay, cool. Thanks. And Mike Ellis, you want to get in here? So yeah, I, I agree with with um, my esteemed colleagues who are sitting beside me. Uh, we would be discussing this um, in the absence of climate change. But the key thing about climate change is that it provides the preservation potential. It, it's going to help to fossilize things and, and make that signal. And you know, it, it's an interesting academic question. Would we still be discussing this if it weren't for climate change? But of course... Um, it's hard to, it's, it's honestly hard to imagine the the um, evolution of societies in the way that, that it's happened so far without that climate change happening. I think that uh, the Anthropocene has, it certainly began in academic circles and it began very specifically with geologists, but it has since moved beyond academic circles into the public sphere. Does public interest in the Anthropocene sort of make all of you a little more rigorous in how you want to define what this boundary represents? We would be rigorous anyway, because as paleontologists and stratigraphers, we're absolutely obsessed with getting, with getting our data right. So I think the rigor would, be, would, would, would always be there. But how do you how do you deal with that public pressure? Do you feel the public pressure at all? We take ad- I take advantage of it. I think. I mean, it, the fact that the the concept clearly resonates with people is is tremendously important and serendipitous from our point of view. Um, and I think it's it's a manifestation of the fact that um, that people fundamentally recognise that they, yeah, we are actually in an age of humans. And the fact that the Anthropocene does not come with the negative baggage that so many other individual forcings do. So there's negative baggage with with climate change. Um, There's certainly negative baggage in talking about uh, uh, resources and exploitation of resources. 
but the Anthropocene wraps that all up together. And so, you know, people can now approach this um, without all that negativity. That's, that's interesting because all of those individual aspects that you just said sort of carry with them political baggage, if you will. How are you able to keep politics out of the Anthropocene? Uh, I, I don't think we will. I think it will come, and, and I'm sure that baggage will arrive with it as well. And, and uh, I think partly we'll, we'll do it by the, the, the classic, you know, geological maneuver of simply ignoring it as far as best as we can. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it does. It, there is one aspect in, in, in which life is made more complex for us in, in terms of any kind of decision making, in that every other geological period uh, and, and epoch and era has been named by geologists for geologists. Uh, without any sort of idea that there might be any wider significance to it or not. So when we consider the Anthropocene as a potential form, you know, formal system, we have to consider not just it's, 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 um, whether it, it works or not geologically, we have to consider its use, and use not just for geologists, but its use also for much wider sections of society. This is very new in geology. I think stratigraphers are not used to, to this kind of, of, uh, of, of thing. So it's going to be interesting times ahead. Did the rest of you also embrace that sort of maybe political or public side of it the way that Mike Ellis does? Yes, it's, well, it's, it's, it's uh, speaking as, 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 as you know, paleontologists and stratigraphers who normally work in, in, the, in the utmost of obscurity, really. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it is nice to have that much interest in what, what's doing, because part of that interest spills over into the, the, the basic old-fashioned geology and paleontology that we're doing, because the, the Anthropocene is, is framed within a context of all the old stuff, uh, and, and therefore that, that makes all, that, all the old stuff more interesting for, the, for the, the world at large. should add that not everybody on the, not everybody on the, um, on the Stratigraphic Commission of the Geological Society of London actually agreed with the, with the idea of an Anthropocene. Yes, so it wasn't right. a completely yeah. common church. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. We're it was. Dissenters. It was a large majority, uh, but there, are, there are. Uh, the Anthropocene is problematic, partly because it is it is clearly work in progress uh, and work in very early progress. Uh, the, the the amount of time is is just minuscule. It's it's laughable. We're dealing with maybe if we take the the, the great acceleration, we're dealing with an epoch which is now. Uh, what uh, something like uh, uh, 63 years old, uh, and we compare that with, let's say, the Holocene. The Holocene itself is tiny, 11 and a half thousand years. The average epoch just in the Cenozoic era is is about 13 million years long. So that gives a kind of a sense of of, of, of the scale of things. Uh, and yet, the Anthropocene clearly um, things are moving very fast geologically. Given that geologic boundaries have historically been defined largely based on the fossil record, and given that the mass extinction that many warn that we're in hasn't quite registered yet in the rock record, is it premature to be describing, defining, and placing a boundary for the Anthropocene? Uh, it, it may be that's one of the things that, of, of course, is on the table. You know, the, 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 the largest changes um, may yet are almost certainly still to come. I think it's still very much an open debate. I think all of us sitting on this panel are still are still involved in that debate. And you just asked the question, have we actually reached the event horizon yet? And it may be that we haven't reached the event horizon yet, that we're looking at a major, a six 
mass extinction event that we're approaching very rapidly, but we're not quite yet that. I think the bit, the biggest dissent is, is that is the time frame, and Jan referred to it. We're, we're only 60 years into the into the Anthropocene epoch, and that's that's actually a very difficult concept for geologists to deal with. Even the Holocene, with its 11,000 plus years, is is still quite a difficult concept for many for many geologists to deal with. So, I think the time frame is a is a, is, a, is an issue. The Anthropocene not only represents sort of a paradigm shift of geologic processes, it also seems to represent a paradigm shift in how we define boundaries. And I'm curious to know what you all think about that. This is what I would say from the legal perspective. If you would look, here we were talking about geological evidence, and evidence immediately to a lawyer sounds as an alarm bell, of course. We always look for <laughs> evidence. And, and if you would look at the rock, if you would compare it to the... Well, p fingerprint. Well, that, this is a valuable piece of evidence, but it's not the prime. Prime evidence is to see you alive doing the thing. <laughs> and that's what we are looking at now. Of course, I'm not a geologist. I have nothing to do with the geology. But now we are looking at the ones who are causing the change, and not at the, at the, at the prime fingerprint. And we are, are speaking into uh, you know, this microphone is, in effect, a trace fossil. You know, that, that is what it is. It, it is a, a manufactured construction made out of eminently geological materials, you know, steel and, and, and plastics made from oil and, and stuff like that. You know, so, um, yes, I would agree that the paradigm shift in, is, is that we are observing both the finger and the fingerprint at the same time. Uh, and that is being doing by, by some rather peculiar bipedal organ organisms. And, and that, that kind of, uh, of, 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 if you like, ecological dominance, you know, has not been achieved in, in, in the geological past. Miles, I'm not following this finger-fingerprint thing. Sure. So think of the fingerprint as evidence used to define a boundary, and the finger itself as a thing that actually caused the boundary. For example, with the dinosaur extinction, the finger would be the meteor, and we never saw that. All we have is the fingerprint, which is basically like the impact crater. Okay. So in the Anthropocene... People are the finger. Right. Just to drive this nail home, they're right. The, the paradigm shift is, is, is how we perceive humans in the context of natural processes. And very often, we tend to uh, face them off. There's a program at the, uh, the NSF, for example, called Coupled Natural and Human Processes, which implies that, that they're different. Um, the paradigm shift is 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 putting us back into nature that's a paradigm shift that's that's uh, i don't know that's an offshoot of, of of the anthropocene or a manifestation but but the the process of passing through a geological boundary and being in a new geological age that strictly speaking is not a paradigm shift I think a, a large part of the public views sort of biology as something separate from geology, as though it's something that's not quite coupled to plate tectonics is not a biological process. And yet now in the Anthropocene, we're trying to wrap our heads around the idea that maybe we are that impactful. The, the geological timescale that we use is to, I mean, those boundaries are defined by fundamental changes in biota. So biology and geology are very closely coupled together. As a paleobiologist, I, I definitely, definitely see that. So, For instance, you know, mountain ranges can literally go higher or lower depending on the biology around, because in, in an ocean trench, uh, sediment piles up. 
uh, that sediment, you know, is is strongly influenced by the kind of weathering and, and biological weathering of, of the mountain ranges behind it. You know, as that sediment is then forced down, the the amount of friction, you know, between the descending plate, you know, and the the overriding plate will determine how high that landscape is, and that will in part be controlled by the biology, you know, which 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 influences those sediments in the first place. It it really is very tightly coupled. Well, that's a nice segue into another sort of the uh, the role of of humans. Um, over a very long term or time scale, um, so one of the principal uh, means of generating a mountain belt is to concentrate erosion in one place for a long time. Well, if humans, uh, as they are, they are dictating the spatial patterns of erosion and the magnitude, if we're around for a long time, then there's a wonderful irony here is that, that we will actually be the cause um, of the distribution of mountain belts, we will actually impact uh, mantle convection. And that's a longer sort of timescale influence, very long timescale. I think there has been this, this, this idea, and I certainly had this idea for, for most of my life, in, in that humans lived their lives out, and, you know, as did my and my family and my friends, you know, against a backcloth of, 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 uh, of an actual world which is out there, which is, is, is supporting and, and will carry on may change a little bit around the edges. Uh, and now that is, is clearly not true. The natural world uh, is us, you know. So if we take again this idea of, uh, the, 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 this um, uh, idea of, of, if you take all of the vertebrates on land and, and simply measure them by weight, dry weight or wet weight, it doesn't matter which, um, then, um, it, that used to be shared between about what 300, 350 species, you know, and uh, you know, with energy flowing, you know, through them and between them and, and, and the rest of the ecosystem. Uh, now uh, we are one third by weight of all the vertebrates on land. Most of the other two thirds is um, the, the, the pigs and the goats and the cows and basically the creatures that we keep to eat, uh, and something of the order of five percent. Uh, are the, all the wild things, you know, the, the, the leopards and the che cheetahs and the elephants and, and the rhinos and, and such like. That is a scale of, of the change that has been made, and that is, but again, one of the, if you like, the characteristics of, of the Anthropocene. You know, so knowing that, I think it, it then becomes, I don't know about easier, uh, but it provides more motivation for coping with that situation. Oh, cool. There was our little peek behind the curtain for the Anthropocene Working Group, and we really can't thank everybody enough for making the time to talk with us, especially Devor for uh, for contacting everyone. There was a lot of stuff covered in there. Miles, what was, what was your take-home message from all this? What did you get out of it? I thought that it was really interesting, the discussion of international laws as opposed to just the physical laws, things like you know physics and chemistry. You know, Devor was really sort of highlighting this concept that all of the laws that we have, what I would call, you know, sort of cultural laws, right. were written in the Holocene, which were all written based on the idea that our environment was going to be stable. And in the Anthropocene, that's not going to happen. You right. know, we're already seeing some of those rapid changes, like sea level rise and things like that. So the idea that changing coastlines will lead to environmental refugees, yeah, our I new, had never thought about that. Yeah. Our new territory, you know, like who owns what part of the ocean. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, and we're seeing that right now with like the contentious 
you know, Arctic petroleum reserves, yeah. right? You know, no one knows how to deal with them because when those boundaries were drawn, it was a different environment that we had. Yeah. yeah. So, like, that whole idea that the Anthropocene itself would ripple out to affect law yeah. was something that had never really hit me before. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ways in which an unstable environment is going to require new international laws. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That really blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. How about Leslie? How about you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I actually thought the coolest part of the conversation was that it wasn't just purely academic. I mean, I'm not yeah. going to lie. When we <laughs> dived into this, I thought it was going to be nerdy, like, really <laughs> nerdy, like super academic um, and just, you know, kind of down in the weeds, sort of geology strata and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, it turns out that they are thinking about how this term, the Anthropocene, is going to impact wider sections of society. I mean, Yan said that at one point. They sure. have they have an appreciation for the power of the word. Yeah, totally. It's not, I mean, they obviously work in a room together, kind of cut off from society when they're having this discussion, but, right. you know, they are thinking about it. I don't know, I thought that was just something that was really cool, because I think it's something that we've been talking about a lot over the past 50 episodes, is how is this term impacting wider sections of society? It's nice to know they think about that, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And Mike, then, how about yeah, you? Yeah, Mike. For me, it was about revisiting geologic time and revisiting Earth history. And, I mean, that's that's the reason I think we chose the Anthropocene as the theme of this podcast, is that, you know, with every episode, we're trying to look at the world through the lens of a geologist, with that Earth science imagination, and, and try and have that conceptualization of this big, vast amount of time. Deep time. Deep time, yeah. And and look at what's happening on the Earth today. And there's something very humbling about that exercise of trying to picture everything that's happened to the Earth and, and then put the context of what we're doing today in that lens. So, I mean, think about what we've done to the planet or what's happened on the planet over the course of the last 50 episodes. Like what? Like, what? Do you mean, yeah. like, the, like the, the, the drought in the Midwest last year. Okay, right. So like S- Superstorm Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. yeah. Like the wildfires also in the West and things like that. And there was, I mean, there was like record heat in Australia. Yeah, right. they, they averaged right. something like 120 degrees Fahrenheit for a while, for like oh, wow. two or three weeks. We like are yeah. now seeing yeah. it, right? This is all in the last 50 episodes. That's yeah. fast. It's fast, yeah. and but it doesn't feel fast most of the time. You know, we don't think about these things day to day. Right, right. Uh, and, and every time we return to this idea of the Anthropocene, that point gets reinforced for me. Every time I put on my geology goggles, <laughs> this comes back to me. So, you know, it, it, yes, it was nerdy and academic-y, but yeah. this was really special for me. So, yeah. Miles, thanks for hooking that up. And, yeah. uh, team, I'm proud of all of us. I love you guys. And, <laughs> and I look forward to the next 50. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank our guru, Tom Hayden, as well as Maxine Luckett for all their behind-the-scenes work. Special thanks to Pam Matson, the Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. And a very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. We also want to thank KZSU Stanford 90.1, where most, but not all, of our interviews are recorded. You can find past episodes on our website, anthropocene.stanford.edu, where you can also submit a story idea of your own. 
Follow our conversation on Twitter, at GenAnthropocene, or like us on Facebook. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Leslie Chang. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Welcome to our new geologic age.